Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Community Relations Corner where we discuss issues of concern to New York's Jewish community and our friends and partners and neighbors all over the city and the metropolitan area. I'm your host, Michael Miller, the Executive Vice President and CEO of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York. And on each episode of Community Relations Corner, we are joined by guests representing the political, religious, economic, and diverse community leadership of New York, many of whom I've had the honor of getting to know over my long tenure here at JCRC and why. Uh, together, we're gonna to be exploring topics which span their interests, backgrounds, and current events impacting New York's Jewish community and its neighbors, as well as the state of our city, the state of our state, and the state of our nation. But first, and sometimes the state of the world, but first a, a word of thanks uh, from our sponsor. This episode of Community Relations Corner is sponsored by the Free Synagogue of Flushing, serving the reformed Jewish community in Queens, New York for over a century. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org to view a 360 degree panorama of its magnificent stained glass sanctuary and immerse yourself uh, in a piece of Queen's Jewish history. All are invited to join for a wide array of programming and webinars and the beautiful Sanctuary Social Hall and Meditation Garden are available for rental to add to your joyous occasions. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org to learn more about their Shabbat services and weekly Sunday school. Once again, visit freesynagogueflushing.org. Thank you to the Free Synagogue and its president, Ed Shorter, and its cantor, Alan Brava, and we are honored to introduce our guest on the corner today, and that is the first Dominican American to be elected to the United States Congress, hailing from New York's 13th Congressional District, representing Upper Manhattan, uh, particularly Washington Heights, where I spent uh, too much of my life, um, and to welcome uh, Congressman Adriano Espaillat. Um, I, I have. You. You're welcome. I, I have known the congressman for a very, very long time. We won't give away our, our ages, uh, but he's somebody who I consider to be a, a very dear friend, uh, but most importantly, a dear friend of the Jewish community in New York. And, and congressman, thank you for, for being here. Shalom um, and gracias. And we very much like to get to know more about you before we start asking uh, some more serious questions, uh, but we seriously want to know, uh, know who is Adriano Espaillat? Uh, where uh, were you born? Where were you raised? And, and how did all those experiences contribute or inspire you to get involved in politics? Well, thank you. Thank you, Michael, first, and the JCRC for inviting me to this Community Relations Corner. Uh, as you said, we've known each other since my days at the New York State Assembly. In fact, I think I, at my first trip to Israel was with you That's back in the late 1990s. And so uh, I value your friendship and your collaboration with me throughout the, the years. Uh, I'm an immigrant, like many New Yorkers. Uh, came here as a young boy from the Dominican Republic uh, in the late 60s, mid-60s. And uh, sort of like was embraced by New York City. I have a lot of good memories uh, of New York City uh, as a child and an adolescent growing up in the city in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I think that the city uh, was and continues to be uh, an avenue uh, to success and accomplishment to many, many people from all over the world. Um, I remember, as I often say, I remember back in the DR, uh, as a child that we thought that the streets in New York City were paved with gold. Uh, <laughs> so, and so guess what? The Jewish community. <laughs> guess what? They were because they gave us the they gave me the opportunity to be a member of Congress and uh, they given so many people in so many uh, avenues of, of, the, of New York City uh, the opportunity for success. So uh, I'm very grateful uh, to New York City and to the different communities throughout New York City who usher me and help me get up and go, right? And so um, as a member of the immigrant community, I also became very much engaged in 
civic duties and public service, uh, and eventually found my way to the, the State House in Albany and the State Senate, where I served for nearly 20 years before becoming, of course, a member of Congress. Yeah, so was it really the immigrant experience which led you into politics? Was, was that the shoehorn? I think it was a combination of things, that being perhaps the prominent reason why. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was around during the tail end of the Vietnam War. I remember going down to 42nd Street to, to enlist uh, in the Army because you had uh, the service back then that you had to do it. I was part of the last lottery Oh. for the, uh, the, the Vietnam War just before it ended. Uh, of course, the civil rights movement was still yes. very much around. I, uh, and and uh, we had just gotten over uh, a, an occupation and a civil war in the Dominican Republic. So all of those things mixed in together, in addition to my immigrant experience, I think uh, made it almost impossible for me not to get involved in this. <laughs> Uh, well, we're, we're very glad that, that you did and the role that you've, you've been playing both uh, in the state house, uh, state legislature, as well as in, as in uh, the house down in Washington. Um, but again, there must have been a, uh, a, a significant change in uh, serving as a legislator between dealing with New York issues um, uh, up in Albany and in Washington, D.C., dealing with, with national and, and global issues. Uh, how was that transition for you? Well, that's an interesting question, uh, Michael, because I've always had uh, a, very a very special place in my heart for foreign politics, uh, international politics, foreign policy. Uh, and uh, to me, that was always like the, the big arena. It was like the major leagues, right? Uh, and so I was on AAA for about 20 years, and then I, I, got, uh, I got a shot at going to the major leagues uh, where you discussed everything from the local issues to the um, international issues, which I think are so interesting uh, and so complex. Yeah. And so for me, it was an opportunity to uh, broaden my horizons and my understanding and also to put out my vision I, uh, out there as a, uh, an immigrant from the Caribbean, uh, from that third border of the United States, which is the Caribbean basin, I thought it was uh, important for Congress and my constituencies to hear uh, that side of me. And I, and I think that, I, and of course, uh, you know, I, I, I got to Washington and uh, right there, uh, Donald Trump was uh, in the White House. So, that, of course, changed everything because of the nature of what he's done and, and how he has approached uh, this presidency. So, so what, what do you view as the priorities within your portfolio since you've been in Congress in, in 2016 and through not only this presidency, but, but also uh, local, national, and, and global events. Um, what particularly have you, you focused on, partic uh, particularly those issues, especially those issues that impact on your constituency? And it's a pretty broad constituency. Well, first, I sit on the Foreign Affairs Committee. And within that, I sit in the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee. Uh, as such, uh, you know, the, it provides me the opportunity to speak about international matters uh, from the Western Hemisphere perspective. And so I've been working to ensure that the Caribbean gets additional funding for the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative that will combat violence and drugs and the presence of terrorism, of terrorist cells in that region, and will provide us uh, with a greater investment in that area that I call the third border. Uh, also, how to address natural disaster. The Caribbean is on the pathway of the hurricanes. So how do we address uh, those issues uh, for the Caribbean Basin? Um, that's one, right? And of course, uh, sitting in that committee, I, I have to address uh, um, my support uh, for Israel uh, and for the, and the uh, matters regarding the Middle East are also very prominent in that committee. And I, I've been, I believe, on the right side of those issues on an ongoing basis. Uh, then I sit also on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. Right. And one of my important projects is the second phase of the Second Avenue subway. And I see it not only addressing um, a major transportation desert in East Harlem, 
but also a great opportunity to, to be an economic engine that will bring jobs to local residents and that will uh, train young people uh, in transportation infrastructure jobs. In fact, Charlie Rangel and I are working on a, a, an institute at City College that will provide the training for future transportation infrastructure jobs for young people. Finally, uh, the pandemic hit. So, uh, of course, priorities quickly changed uh, with the pandemic and my district was hard hit by the pandemic, but I do have a, a lot of hospitals, probably more hospital beds than any other district across the country. I have Montefiore Hospital, Mount Sinai, New York Presbyterian, Harlem Metropolitan Hospital, Northwest Bronx, and a, a healthy network of community-based physicians. Uh, but we also got hit you know, with very high numbers because uh, our my constituency suffers from diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, cardiovascular problems, yeah. respiratory problems, and we saw staggering numbers. And so I quickly uh, worked with community leaders and, and uh, healthcare uh, leaders in putting together a network of discussion where we're gonna see very soon uh, a major mental health initiative because I think there's a mental health component to this uh, pandemic that we haven't really seen in its full scope. Uh, fighting for more PPEs for local doctors so they can reopen their practices and begin to address prevention. Uh, in addition to that, uh, fighting for ventilators and the hospitals that really were, and the healthcare workers that were the protagonists, they were the, the leaders in, in, in during this pandemic and, and help save lives. So we still got a long way to go because this pandemic is still very much out there, but that has been uh, recently my number one priority. Yeah, wow. So uh, that's a lot on the plate. And I know that members of Congress uh, have to have a very, very broad agenda uh, to, to deal with, let alone all the other issues that come up as in the course of business um, in, in the House. Uh, but I want, I want to go, go back and just drill down a little bit. Uh, many of our viewers, listeners would very much like to know about the 2nd Avenue subway um, and what the projection is as to when it is going to stretch all the way up in, into East Harlem and, and that it be completed after all, all these decades? Well, we, we've been successful in keeping and increasing the funding for the project. And the state has also uh, put its, its, its share of funding for the project. But, you know, the Second Avenue subway is joined at the hip for funding for the MTA as a whole. Right. So for that reason, I've ensured that we put the, the funding that the, the MTA had asked for in the CARES Act uh, back at the beginning of the year when we passed that. And I've in, I made sure that it was included in the HEROES Act, I think $8 billion yeah. right. to uh, avoid a major deficit that will then, of course, impact uh, the funding for the Second Avenue subway. So we've been successful in the first part. The money is there in the HEROES Act that we passed in the House. And I'm very optimistic that eventually uh, that will be adopted and, and we can avert a major fiscal cliff for the MTA and we could continue to push for the Second Avenue subway. Now, the Second Avenue subway is a regional project, Michael. It's not just a local project because it connects to Metro North on 125th Street. Yes. It connects uh, to LaGuardia Airport via bus on 125th Street and it will connect on the west side uh, to ferry service uh, off the Manhattan Bill development and Columbia University expansion there. So this is the, and, and, and of course it will reduce uh, uh, the number of strap hangers in the Lexington Avenue line, which is the most crowded uh, subway line in, in, in the country. Right. And so th these are critical issues, right? Yeah. I think it's an economic engine for East Harlem and the region as well. It will provide a good prevailing wage jobs for the young people that we're going to get trained at the Institute in City College. Yeah. Uh, again, that, that, I hope that all that comes to, to fruition. Uh, I also see that you're on the House Small Business Committee. That's correct. Uh, yes. And, I felt to mention that one. Yes. Right. And small businesses uh, have been pummeled uh, during the course of, of this uh, pandemic. Um, and uh, even though, you know, the CARES Act was passed, um, it, it's still a huge struggle for small businesses. I'm sure that's occupying a lot of your time, particularly in, in your district in Washington Heights. Uh, so many small businesses operate there. Um, so uh, how has that played into the priorities too? 
Well, we're very early in the pandemic. I think the first week of the pandemic, New York Presbyterian was gracious enough to give out a $10 million grant for small businesses. Over 600 local businesses got anywhere from $1,000 to $25,000 in grants uh, to uh, help address that. We still have a good chunk of that funding available for a second sort of like uh, round. Uh, In addition to that, obviously, we were very, very active in making sure that our local businesses apply for the PPP program. Over 6,000 of those uh, businesses applied throughout the district. Uh, I know that in East Harlem, there's also another pot of money, close to $3 million that the councilwoman there, Councilwoman Diana Ayala, was able to obtain for local businesses. And just recently, this past week, uh, we heard from Google, which has got uh, uh, $500,000 grants for small Latino-owned businesses, and they will be taking the applications in any training and coaching for those businesses as well will come in. So we're very active in that. I think that obviously there are many businesses, uh, for example, the restaurant business that needs special attention because of the nature of the business. I think when it gets cold and they have to go indoors, they will suffer. So we we need another round of PPPs. Uh, and I'm hopeful that that will happen once we reach an agreement on the HEROES Act. Yeah, well, we, we in the not-for-profit world um, also hope that there is a... That's correct. You are eligible. That's correct. Yes. Another, another PPP. We were eligible last go-around, and hopefully we'll be eligible again if, if it's uh, put on the agenda. Um, and uh, I know that you know there's so many not-for-profits uh, here in New York uh, that have also... Uh, been really taking a hit um, because philanthropy is challenging for those who take government dollars. We don't, but those who do, uh, there are issues there too. But I, I want to go back to, uh, you mentioned about the Caribbean being uh, the, the third border. So I guess the second border is the border with Mexico, um, right? <laughs> First border is the one with Canada going from, from north to south. Um, and immigration reform has to be one of, of your top priorities outside of your committee work. Um, and you know what's been happening on the southern border has been troubling uh, to, to many. So, and I understand that you went down to that border to see with your own eyes to investigate the allegations. Uh, so what did you see and what kind of immigration policy do you think makes the most sense for the United States of America? Well, what I saw there, uh, Michael, was shameful. Uh, I saw uh, women and children, for the most part, women and children, laying on a very cold, dingy floor in a huge cell, holding cell. You know, they looked like packed sardines. Really an embarrassment for our nation, right? Uh, And how then, of course, uh, those children were stripped away from their parents. My office was very active in reuniting parents that were 3,000 miles away from their children. We had a lady come from Arizona all the way to New York, uh, uh, Jenny, to uh, join with her two children. And so this was a a very uh, sad time in in the history of our nation. Um, We saw how people were under the bridge at El Paso, Texas, at the crossing there. And so we went down to see what was happening there. Uh, And of course, uh, the inhumane conditions that immigrants seeking, uh, some of them, many of them seeking asylum, fighting for their lives. Some of them have come through also because of environmental issues, because there was a horrendous drought in the Triangle region uh, affecting the agriculture there, forcing mothers for the most part to travel thousands of miles through Central America to the border uh, to seek refuge and save their life and their children's lives. Uh, just recently, I traveled down to Irwin, Georgia, uh, to visit a group of women that have been detained at that facility, the ICE facility, and have been subjected to medical treatment uh, and operations that they really knew very little about, and hence were not given the proper orientation or knowledge about what, uh, and, and therefore no, no legitimate consent. In two cases, uh, women were subjected to hysterectomies. And in the other cases, they were submitted to very rough and and aggressive uh, treatment. Uh, One of them described uh, them being treated as animals. And so uh, we're trying to shut down that facility, which is run by a private entity. And we're trying to to get Congress to take a look at the practices 
by the doctor that administered the exams. And so what, from a policy perspective, particularly now since the Democrats are, uh, have the majority in, in the House, what, would, what policy would you like to see implemented okay. here um, to ensure that all these things that, that you have witnessed uh, that are objectionable be addressed? Well, first, uh, first uh, I, we were successful. I was successful in allocated funding for a body camera program for Border Patrol. So to ensure that any interaction between Border Patrol and folks crossing the border is done in an appropriate way. Uh, it, it helps to protect uh, the immigrants and also the Border Patrol agents. And so that's already in uh, in in uh, the uh, system, and uh, a pilot project is being put in place. It began already at the border, so uh, the the funding will address the body camera program for hundreds of, of border patrol agents and eventually ICE agents. Uh, but in addition to that, we want to see uh, dreamers be brought in. That's really a no-brainer. It's a low-hanging fruit. These are young people that came in at a very young age, some of them one, two years old. They're doctors, they're, they're teachers, they're small business owners, they own their own homes, many of them. They're very successful and they pay taxes and they know no other country than America. And so many of them can't even speak the language of their home country. Uh, so uh, we want uh, those dreamers to be brought in. We want TPS, temporary protective status, also extended to those people that are fleeing for their lives from violence, from war-torn countries, from violent gangs, from natural disasters that put their lives and those of their family members uh, in, in danger. So these are the first two actions that should be taken. Mm -hmm. But eventually, we're going to have to do a comprehensive immigration reform act. And I think that the, the proposals are there in place that will help uh, obviously put something together that will bring in those folks that have not broken the law, that will add additional uh, value to America. You know, we're gonna need these folks uh, to recuperate. The economy has always been linked. The, the, the uh, resurgence of the US economy has always been linked with also the presence of, of labor, uh, new labor force, in this case, immigrants that want to come in and help uh, bring America to where it should be. Yeah. Well, that's um, uh, it's a very, very large uh, agenda, but I think the immigration, the immigration issue has just been looming for too many years. And I hope that over the course of the next year, um, many of the suggestions that you've put forward are looked at and uh, hopefully legislated. Um, and before we continue, I really want to thank again our, our sponsor. We wouldn't be able to have Community Relations Corner without sponsorship. And that sponsorship, of course, is with uh, the Free Synagogue of Flushing, serving the Reformed Jewish community in Queens, New York for over a century. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org to view a 360-degree panorama of its magnificent stained-glass sanctuary and immerse yourself in a piece of Queen's Jewish history. All are invited to join a wide array of programming and webinars and the beautiful Sanctuary Social Hall and Meditation Garden are available for rental to add to your joyous occasions. I hope, Congressman, you get a chance to see the Free Synagogue. We'll and have to. Your staff will go to freesynagogueflushing.org and take a look uh, at, at the beautiful uh, panorama of their stained glass. Uh, visit freesynagogueflushing.org to learn about uh, Shabbat services and uh, weekly Sunday school. Once again, Please visit freesynagogueflushing.org, and we thank you for your sponsorship, because otherwise you wouldn't have the pleasure of having Congressman Adriano Aspayat with us, and we're going to shift the focus now back. We spoke a little bit about the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, and there really is considerable debate in Congress over the properly, how to properly address the pandemic, and even more challenges at home in terms of healthcare disparities. Uh, what, what policy changes do you think are necessary to help uh, the American people through these exceptionally trying times? Well, first and foremost, we're still in the middle of the pandemic. So uh, you got to wear your mask. You got to wash your hands. You got to distance. You got to adhere to all the recommendations that the medical community and the scientific community 
are providing to us because uh, in the last few days, we've seen the highest number of COVID-19 positive cases throughout the pandemic. Many people think it's over, but the fact of the matter is that in the last three days, uh, the United States of America has seen the highest number of COVID-19 positive cases since the pandemic began. So this is still very much moving forward, unfortunately. So we must continue to take the precaution uh, to uh, wash our hands, to socially distance, to wear our masks, and to uh, take all the precautions that are being given to us by, by the medical and scientific communities. Uh, in addition to that, um, because of that, we have to continue to provide funding for our medical institutions. Uh, we got to continue to provide PPEs. We got to continue to help now uh, community-based primary care physicians that are trying to open up in New York City. Uh, those doctors that were shut down and were handling their clients, their, their patients through telehealth, are now trying to open up and address some of the pending medical conditions that their patients had that for now several months have been unattended because of the pandemic. And in order for these doctors, uh, if you take a look at the American Health Journal, there's an op-ed there today, published today, uh, where I give the recommendations for local community-based physicians to be funded for their PPEs. The cost of the PPEs for these private practices has gone up. Many of them have taken new measures in their offices to install new ventilation equipment or to reshape their offices so they they're in compliance with social distancing rules. So there's added expenses to these important uh, doctors. They're in the trenches, they're in the front lines. Those are the doctors that are in, down the block from you where most people go to before they go to the hospital. So we gotta help them. So these are the, the uh, important things that we got to do. We got to continue to work on the vaccine. And once a vaccine is found, there must be an ethical way to distribute the vaccine. I think there's going to be, unfortunately, a scramble where the rich and powerful, powerful may try to muscle in and try to get the vaccine before anybody else. So there must be an organized uh, and ethical way to distribute the vaccine determined by the medical and scientific community. Uh, finally, Michael, I think this has obviously an economic uh, tangent to it. And small businesses, as you said earlier, need to get additional help. They need to make sure that we need to make sure that we, we have another round of PPEs, that we also give grants out to our small businesses, and that we usher them back uh, to fiscal help. So these are the major challenges. Uh, one last thing I mentioned that earlier is there's going to be a mental health tsunami. Yeah. Many people lost their loved ones without appropriately saying goodbye to them. Mm -hmm. Many people lost their job or shut down their business. People were fighting for their lives so for two, three months in the hospital or know someone that did that or were sick themselves or were just locked up in their apartments with their children for two, three months. And so the, the world is never going to be the same because of this experience. And I think there's going to be a mental health crisis emerging as a result of this pandemic, and we must address that as well. Wow, yes, very much so. Um, and, but moving through this pandemic, we, we also saw the, the murder of, of George Floyd, which set off uh, massive demonstrations here in New York and, and throughout the nation. Um, and, and your constituency uh, is certainly concerned uh, about the behavior of our police and sometimes the misbehavior of our police and trying to balance that with their real concerns about safety, looting, rioting, and the lack of, of mass compliance. Um, so how do you strike a balance uh, between police uh, protection and ensuring the safety of, of, our, uh, of, of your constituency of, of, of New Yorkers um, as well as people across the country, uh, making sure that neither of them are skewed out of, out of proportion. I think it requires leadership, Michael. And uh, let me tell you, I know that very often the same folks that are saying uh, that Black lives truly matter and that we want to see police reform are the same folks that say uh, no to the looting and that are also concerned about the quality of life issues that are emerging uh, in our neighborhoods. And they, they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. I think that we can handle both of them. 
Uh, and in fact, I think there's room uh, for a great debate, a vigorous discussion as to how do we go about reforming the police in a responsible way that it won't compromise the quality of life that most New Yorkers uh, want and need. I think that we can accomplish that, but it requires leadership. And I think there's been a lack of leadership in that terrain. We must make sure that uh, the police uh, refrain from uh, aggressive tactics. Uh, we must do away with the knee. We must do away with the chokehold. We must do away with uh, a, a culture of aggressiveness uh, uh, that unfortunately uh, shows up in very negative and deadly ways. Uh, but we also must preserve the quality of life of our neighborhoods. Right. Because that's why people live in those neighborhoods, because it has a lot to offer them. And I think there's been a lack of preserving that as well. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think there are legislative proposals that will address both. And we should engage in a healthy discussion to ensure that we get there together. Do you think, do you think that um, the atmosphere now is conducive to having that kind of a, of a discussion, um, what, what would lead for that? This, it doesn't seem that enough of that is, ha, has happened. I know that I've been in, in a number of, of conversations with uh, neighborhood-based leaders and NYPD. They've been very, very constructive, including uh, with, with the commissioner. Um, and the people around the table are, are, are Black, some are Latino, um, some are Asian, some are Jewish, some are, are white, uh, Irish Catholic, let us say. Um, I think much more of that needs to be done. Uh, and I agree. And I think, that, I think that the JCRC could play a pivotal role right. in, because of the respect that you have across New York City. And I, I, I'll stand my hand, uh, Michael, to join you. Right. And, and, and let's come together, let's all come together and have this discussion so that we can move forward together as one city. I think it's important. The city, uh, you know, is not in its best shape right now. You know, I, I walk around the district, I, I go around the city. Uh, sanitation services are practically uh, in a bad, bad, bad state. Uh, the homeless uh, crisis is just bursting through the seams. Um, you know, this, uh, the school, our public school system uh, has attempted to get up a goal, but I think it has been unfortunate because we have not seen the response from families, you know, to send their children to school or to get on that distance learning approach. I think there's been, the success of it has been dismal. And so, uh, and then of course, you have a police community relations, which must be better. Uh, and so the, uh, we have great challenges, perhaps um, greater than ever before. Um, the, we yet don't know the kind of uh, economic hit the city will eventually have from this pandemic. Public transportation, for example, needs lots of money so that it won't collapse and it'll be available to move working New York to their jobs when, when we do finally open up. So we got these great challenges uh, that perhaps we haven't seen before in this, of this magnitude. And we all got to, you know, be on lockstep. We all got to come together to make sure that we all ships rise at the same time. Right, 100%. And dealing with uh, neighborhood-based, let's talk to look at part of your district and the neighborhood that you know so well, Washington Heights. Um, and uh, I, you have there a a significant Dominican population, other Spanish-speaking populations, and you have a significant uh, Jewish population, uh, let alone uh, the institution that I spent, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a good deal of my time at Yeshiva University. And I understand that you have a, a, a warm relationship with their president, uh, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman. Um, yeah. uh, um, how do you see opportunities on, on a local level for these two communities to, to work in partnership uh, with one another. I, I know that up, up on Capitol Hill, you're, you're a member of the Latino Jewish Caucus. Um, do we have like, something like that uh, in Washington? Not only, a member, not only a member, Michael, I'm the co-chair of it. 
All right, they, they didn't tell me that. <laughs> I'm the co-chair of the Latino Jewish Caucus, and I wanted to be the co-chair because uh, of the long-standing relationships between the Latino community and the Jewish community, yes. particularly in Washington Heights. I think it has been a great experience, right, uh, for the most part. Uh, and we battle uh, uh, common um, threats together. Uh, you know, I remember when we had uh, that bigoted white nationalist group, uh, Europa, go up to uh, Fort Tryon Park, just a couple of blocks from Dr. Roof's house, uh, but also just a couple of blocks away from the Dominican immigrant community. Yeah. And so we came together at Fort Tryon Park, and we had the rabbis and the priests and the pastors there uh, and the families there to say, to push back on this group that all of a sudden disappeared there one day wow. uh, to uh, uh, roll out this anti-Semitic and anti-immigrant message. And we all pushed back together. And so there's been this longstanding, uh, tremendous relationship between those two communities that I felt compelled to take that kind of a spirit to, to Washington, right? where I think it has also been very fruitful. Yeah, well, I, I hope that um, the Latino Jewish Caucus in Washington uh, finds a, a mirror image uh, in, in Washington Heights uh, of the Latino and Jewish residents of the, of the neighborhood, because communication is, is really key. And um, you, you certainly have had a, a longstanding relationship with our community and can serve as a role model uh, for bringing people uh, together and wherever JCRC can help, uh, we, we very much. Uh, very thank much you, welcome. thank you. Um, there was an, an article, speaking about relationships, there was an article that was published in Jewish Insider uh, about one of your, your colleagues um, uh, kind of uh, avoiding a relationship with, with uh, the, the Jewish community. Um, how, how do you understand the reticence uh, to even engage with the Jews just doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me. Well, as I said earlier, uh, you know, I mean, I reject any effort to uh, not engage uh, in a healthy discussion, um, any move against uh, tolerance, I reject. And I think the only way we could understand each other is by having a working relationship. And once we do that, we'll find so many things in common. For example, with the Dominican community and the Jewish community, what we found was the, the story of Sosua, right? Which is- uh, I want uh, to ask you, I, I, want, I want to make sure that our listeners uh, know about Sosua, but many of them don't. Yeah, well, Sosua is, is a small a coastal town a great beach, right? Great palm trees, uh, where uh, the Dominican Republic allowed the first uh, Jewish members that were fleeing the Holocaust to settle. Right. And, and so there they built uh, this wonderful community and they proved to be very successful. And, and of course, many of them now, some of them uh, still live here um, in, uh, in the United States. And so the story was somewhat known, but not really known about many people. And, and finally, we were able to go down there and find some of those, the artifacts and the, the, the history of it. And eventually that led to a major exhibit called Sosua Island Paradise at the Holocaust Museum. Really? And so uh, if you go to Israel and you go to Jerusalem, if you go to the Holocaust Museum, there's, there's a, a, a tree planted there for the Dominican Republic because of its leadership in allowing, being the first country that allowed the uh, victims uh, of the Holocaust settle there. Yad Vashem, the Holocaust uh, Museum in, in, in Jerusalem that our missions have gone to, and I've been to probably a hundred times, but I've never seen correct. it, and I've got to find it. Next trip. Yes, yes. And so... And so because of that, right, uh, and I was privy to that because I had uh, friends, Dominicans of Jewish descent that had uh, given me the opportunity to read about uh, the story. Uh, you know, we brought that to New York City and it, it, it served to be a bridge and further solidify the relationship between uh, Dominicans and, and Jewish folks. And so this is the kind of partnership that I look to engage in. And anything else, I will reject. And I think that there's room for everybody. We must have 
a big tent approach to our politics and our government. And thank you. And we, we thank um, your, your uh, birthplace, uh, the Dominican Republic, um, uh, for its embrace of the Jewish people during the course of the Holocaust. Uh, it probably was one uh, of the only, if not the only countries in the world that accepted refugees uh, escaping from almost certain death. Um, and uh, they were able to come to a, a country, foreign country, and to be accepted, uh, to be uh, warmly welcomed, and, and to achieve uh, the success that, that they, they did it, uh, achieve. Um, and uh, I, I look forward to seeing uh, my next trip to, to Jerusalem uh, to take a look at, at the, and Yad Vashem for that tree. Um, but you know, on my way there to find a tree, Michael, yes. I ran into another tree for Raoul Wallenberg. Yes. And there is a park uh, right near Yeshiva University, which is called the Raoul Wallenberg Park. So I was familiar with that story as well. Yeah. And it was like, uh, you know, it was just incredible. But, but the, and I, if, I, if I remember correctly, it may have been on your trip that I, I saw that when I went with you many, many years ago. <laughs> a long time ago. Let's, let's not talk about it. <laughs> but it was, it was a, a great trip. Um, and I think it was a very unique trip, actually, that, that you were on at, at the time. And, and speaking of Israel, um, you're a busy guy, so not only all the committees that you serve on, uh, plus the Latino Jewish uh, Caucus that you co-chair, but you're also a member of the Democratic Israel Working Group. So That's correct. Maybe you can share with uh, our viewers something about what it is that you've been able to do w within the framework of, of, of that group, and, um, and maybe what has hindered you uh, due to the current uh, polarized and polemic uh, polemical environment that we're currently in? Well, first, uh, you know, we, we reject BDS and, and anything that has, you know, to do with that. And, and we, we look at legislation uh, that could be helpful uh, and consensus building. For example, as a member of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, I've led the way uh, with uh, members from across the aisle, from even the Republican Party, uh, to uh, enact uh, laws that would uh, diminish the possibility of the presence of a Hezbollah in Latin America and the Caribbean, because we've seen how Hezbollah has now extended its tentacles, not just across the Middle East, but now there also there is a presence in certain countries of Latin America and in the Caribbean. And so we have uh, stiffened their sanctions against them uh, and we work in that arena. Uh, but we look at, we take a look at every piece of legislation that could have a positive or a negative impact on our relationship with the state of Israel and we act upon it. And I think that that's been very fruitful. Uh, and, and you know, regardless of whether people may agree or disagree with us, uh, I am very confident that, you know, we have the higher moral ground on those issues and I will continue to pursue them. Yeah, and we're very concerned regarding the, the potential for violence on, on that northern border, on, on, the, on the Lebanese border. Um, uh, Lebanon is, is uh, a, a very uh, volatile uh, country right now, the battles uh, be between uh, the, the, the Shiites um, and, and the, the, the Christians, the Maronites, um, and everybody else in, in between. Uh, so what, what Hezbollah might do um, is something that the United States of America should do everything that they can to uh, prevent. Um, and so the work that you're doing is really crucial. And not only do we take a look at uh, Hezbollah uh, individually, but who funds Hezbollah, I think, is a critical issue. And, and all indications are that uh, Iran, for example, is one of the biggest uh, uh, enablers uh, of Hezbollah. And so we're concerned about that. And that's an area that I believe was left out of the, the agreement. Uh, uh, it should have been a stronger agreement. Uh, and that was one aspect that was... Uh, left out uh, our ability to monitor and hold accountable our Iran and its funding of terrorist organization continues to be an important issue for me. 
Right. Thank you very much for that. Um, before I ask my next question, in the interim, I received a, a text from one of our uh, uh, senior staff uh, members who was a Peace Corps volunteer. Mary was a Peace Corps volunteer and was in Sisua um, as okay. a volunteer. She says it's a beautiful town on the northern coast um, and she knows the story very well. So we're, we're bearing it out. The, my own staff knows about it. Um, okay, so a major success in diplomacy um, that the Jewish community points to nowadays is the, are the peace treaties between the Israel and the UAE and, and Bahrain. Uh, as a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, how do you view the development both for Israel and for the United States and uh, what might happen down the road? Well, uh, I, I think that we could safely say that any time two countries that have had a belligerent or uh, intolerant relationship come together and put that aside, it's a step forward. But, uh, you know, much more needs to be done. Uh, we must take a look at Saudi Arabia and their practices, their internal practices, very heavy-handed, over-the-top uh, you know, so we, we that is uh, a particular interest to me, uh, as well as, of course, Iran and their their presence in the region and how they impact on stability in the region. So that's another major issue there. So we still have so much more to go. It's a step forward, but much more needs to happen. I think much more. We need to see what kind of commitment those uh, governments had behind the agreement. Uh, and see, to ensure that they enforce the provisions of the agreement. Yeah, well, let's hope so. And I'm, I'm very hopeful, as uh, many members of our community are, that uh, with Israel's establishing relationships with those uh, two countries, that there's a potential for other countries uh, to establish relationships with Israel um, as well. And I think that would add um, to the stability of a very unstable uh, area of the world um, and anything that can add to um, the prospects for peace is something that we should be supportive of. So I, I thank you for uh, the role that you've been, been playing there. Just as a, as a final question, all the issues that we talked about today, uh, do you see any particular role for the, the Jewish community and our voice where it would be most helpful? Well, I think that the Jewish community has played a, a very important role in keeping us uh, informed, educated about these issues. I, I, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's not a monolithic voice, right? It has different organizations that approach it from different perspectives. So I think that's also important that we hear from the different voices and their views on how to move forward together in making sure that Israel is safe that the, uh, the state of Israel is protected, that terrorism is eradicated from that region, and that everybody can move forward. Uh, but you know, locally, I think we need to continue, and, and also internationally, I, need to, I think we need to continue to strengthen the bonds between Latin America the Caribbean and the Jewish community yeah. uh, here in the United States and abroad. I think because uh, there is a, a presence of members of the Jewish community in all those countries, right? Uh, and, and, and we can really benefit uh, from that presence and, and strengthen our bonds. But I think that we need to ensure that the Latino communities understands these issues better, that they're active participants uh, in making sure that the world and the Middle East is safer. Yeah, and I think we also need to make it sure that we uh, route out anti-Semitism wherever it rears uh, its head. Uh, and we, we had a terrible spike in anti-Semitism prior to the pandemic. Uh, we're all uh, very concerned once we beat this pandemic, which I'm confident that we will, um, that anti-Semitism and other forms of hate, not just against Jews, but hatred against, against others um, is combated. Um, and whatever role that you can play up on, on Capitol Hill, let alone uh, to the communities uh, in your district and uh, who look up to you uh, for the success that you've achieved uh, to ensure that we have uh, bonds of friendship between um, all the ethnic communities in New York and the faith communities in New York, including the Jewish community. 
I think it's important to combat anti-Semitism in any way, shape, or form, whether it's here locally or any place in the world. And you have my commitment to that. Thank and you. Michael. You have my commitment to uh, maintaining our friendship uh, over over these these decades. And I can't thank you enough, Congressman Adriano Espaillat, uh, for joining us on Community Relations Corner today. Uh, it has truly been a, a pleasure to have you here to host you. Um, I'm going to conclude with um, a message of thanks again to our sponsor and think about your last line to us. We're going to call on you again after I finish uh, re reading uh, my message about our sponsor and give you the last words. So here we go. This episode of the Community Relations Con uh, Corner is sponsored by the Free Synagogue of Flushing, serving the Reformed Jewish community in Queens, New York for over a century. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org to view a 360-degree panorama of its magnificent stained glass sanctuary and immerse yourself in a piece of Queens Jewish history. All are invited to join for a wide array of programming and webinars in the beautiful sanctuary social hall and meditation garden are available for rental to add to your joyous occasions. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org to learn about their Shabbat services and weekly Sunday school. Once again, please visit freesynagogueflushing.org. And the last word goes to the Congressman. Thank you, Michael. I wanna thank you and the JCRC. And uh, in particular, I wanna thank my Jewish constituency, Yeshiva University, of course, being among it, uh, as well as all the Jewish communities across the district for the great friendship and support that they're giving me. And I just look so much forward to working with you as we go towards the future united as one community. Thank you so much. Thank you, Representative Adriano Espaillat. We thank our audience for joining us live or those who will be seeing us once it's posted online. I'm Michael Miller. I'm the Executive VP of JCRC New York, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Community Relations Corner. Shalom. Goodbye. <laughs>